This talk was recorded by Canvas Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as a part of the 2021 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. My name is Mike Parrott, and I'm on staff with CO St. Louis. And so I work with Julie and Ryan and Dayton, and uh, we have a lot of fun together. And so uh, I've been on staff for uh, going on 12 years now. And 11 of those years have been with my wife, Tracy. I think we have a picture of our family. Sorry, this is like whited out bad. There's a photographer, my wife's a photographer, so she probably wouldn't be happy I showed this picture. But it is what it is. So that's my wife, Tracy. Uh, that's our son, Seven, da- uh, Thomas. And then Dawson on the right there is four years old. And um, man, we have a lot of fun together. And we love what we do. Uh, we love working with college students. We love working for Campus Outreach. And we especially love being down on Project. And I'm sure you've gotten a taste of it this last week. But Project is just a wonderful place because you can see the transforming work of God in so many different people's lives. And we've seen not only in, you know, this has been, I think I counted the other day, like maybe like the 13th or 14th project I've been on, but I love coming down every single year. And it made me sad that I do that whole weird virtual thing last summer. Um, because we, it's not only seen the transforming work of God in your life, but even I experience it each and every summer. And so I'm excited to come back in August and see all that God does in your lives and all the ways that He grows you and matures you and causes you to love Him and want to make Him known. And not only that, it's a lot of fun. And so we get to see people, you know, pushing other people in shopping carts while we shoot water balloons at them. Um, You know, my kids jump in sometimes even without their floaties, even though they don't know how to swim. So thank you for those that have jumped in after my kids and saved their lives. Um, The project's a lot of fun. And so we're excited to be down here, and we're excited to see all what God does. And so this time, I know, is a very special time where we get to get together and get to open God's Word together and explore our theme. So this theme, this year's theme, is Gain. And I know that last week, Reed talked about, or titled the talk, Gaining God. You guys talked about, I believe you used the A.W. Tozer quote and the C.S. Lewis quote that, you know, it it is important what we think of God, but it is far more important what God thinks of us. And I know Reed just mentioned that uh, Reed used Luke 15 to talk about all the ways that God views us and how God loves us and cares for us. And so... um, you know, I thought about a little bit about how we titled his talk, Gaining God. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've just really, if we stop and we think about that title, Gaining God, it's a pretty audacious title of a talk. There would be many in probably our own schools and around the world that would be offended at the title of that talk. Why do Christians have the audacity to claim that they can gain God? That they have access to the transcendent God who made it, who's made everything. Do you realize what we're claiming? That you and I can know the one true God and have an intimate relationship with Him? 
But I think if we consider that claim, then another question should probably follow. And it follows a lot of probably the conversations we have with others that don't know Jesus. Is that if we have access to God, then why are there so many problems in the world? If God's made himself available, why doesn't he just fix everything? And Zach actually uh, asked a great question in missional training. I think he's uh, sent you guys out in Walmart to ask this and with your coworkers. And it's a great question. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the question was, what do you think is the world's biggest problem? Right? Is that, that was the question? And what I want to do tonight is not just... Uh, uh, not just uh, have and equip you to go ask that to other people, but I wanted tonight ask you that very question. How would you answer that question? What is the world's biggest problem? Actually, if I could get a little bit more personal with you guys, I know you guys just met me, but I feel since I'm up here and I have the mic, I can, you know, work closer. Um, but if I could get a little bit pers- per- personal with you tonight is, what it, not just what is the world's biggest problem, but what is your biggest problem? If I were to come to each and every single one of you and ask you, hey, what is the biggest problem in your life? How would you answer that question? And I think that's going to get to the second part of what I want to talk about tonight is not just what is the problems of our life in the world, but what is the solution? Because I want to make the claim that how you answer those two questions will either lead you to a life of joy and fulfillment or death and despair. So my goal tonight is for you to be able to walk away and answer that question. My, my goal for you to re- tonight is to realize that when we ask the question, what are the problems of life in the world, it's actually fairly simple. It's a simple question. It's a simple answer but it actually is far worse than we could have ever dreamed. But when we ask the question of what is the solution, man, it is far better than we could have ever hoped for. So would you pray with me really quick before we dive in and start to answer those questions? So God, I pray uh, for our time tonight. God, I pray that you would answer that question for us. God, that you would open our eyes to see as we get in your word together, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. So God, please move in our hearts and our minds. Be with us, even at the end of an exhausting day. For this name of Jesus, amen. So I just made the claim that uh, how you answer the question, what's your biggest problem in life and what is the solution, will either lead you to a life of joy and fulfillment or death and despair. That may sound like an audacious, audacious, audacious claim. Words are hard sometimes. Um, audacious claim. Well, to illustrate that point, let me tell you a real quick story. It actually happened, I think, in the marsh. If it's that, I think, yes, the marsh is that way, right? Am I right? That way? Yes, that way. Um, and it happened when I was 10 years old. So what you don't know about me is I actually, my family came down to Myrtle Beach several times before um, when I was younger. So I've, I've, I have probably walked by our hotel dozens of times because we stayed in a hotel like three doors, three hotels down from where we're staying right now. So it's funny, when I came with spring break with Dayton, I arrived at the hotel and I was like, what world am I living in? Like, I've been to that arcade. I've done this, you know. I've walked by this all countless amounts of times. 
And so it's really fun being here because so many memories are floating back with uh, my family and things that we've done. But one time when I was 10 years old, my uncle woke me up and it was, it was during low tide. And he said, hey, do you want to go to the marsh with me? I was like, sure, that's great. Let's do it. And he was like, we're going to start, we're going to catch, I don't know if it was like crawfish, little fish, shrimp. It could have been, who knows. Um, but he wanted to catch some bait so that we could fish off the pier and out, uh, out on the beach. He wanted to catch something in the marsh. And I was like, okay, let's do this. So we were walking on the road that's the bridge. Uh, what road is that? Anybody know? Um, not, I know there are two roads, but it's the one, yes, it's the C1. Whoever said it? Yes, Cyprus. So we were walking on that road, and we had gotten right before we had gotten to the beach. He looked at me and he said, Michael, I want you to stay with me when we get down to the marsh. I said, yes, I will. And, uh, and so we walked down to the marsh and he walked right under the bridge and I walked left. <laughs> and uh, he walked and literally I was like, because I was like, I want to do what I want to do. Like, you know, you'll learn more of this more about me. But I was like, I... I'm going to do my own thing. So I took a left, and I got literally not, I didn't get too far away from the bridge, and I took a step, and all of a sudden my foot was stuck. I was like, I can't get my foot out. So I took another step to try to get my foot out, and then this foot got stuck. And so I was like wiggling, trying to get myself out. And what once, what started by, uh, by my feet getting stuck, and now moved to my knees. I was up with my knees, and I was stuck. And then soon it became, I was up to my waist, stuck into this mud in the marsh. And all of a sudden, when I was in the marsh, up to my waist in this mud, I heard the squeal of tires behind me. And a car had come to a stop. And a guy got out and he yelled at me, Stop! Stop what you're doing! You're in quicksand! And as a 10-year-old, I was like, Uh... Okay, so I just stopped what I was doing. And when I consider the question that I pose to you tonight, what is the problems of the world? What's your solution? When I think about how often I answer that question, I find myself more and more hip to my waist in fear and anxiety and frustration and despondency because how I'm answering the question just isn't working. Is that you? Are you walking through life identifying what are probably legitimate problems, but your solutions are just leading you deeper and deeper into places that you don't want to go? So do you see how you answer this question is a matter of life and death? So, Let's look with me first. Um, how would, if we went to the Bible and we asked the question, what is the problem? What do we want to say? I tonight want to kind of act like that guy for you guys, the guy on the bridge. And I want to say, stop what you're doing. Stop how, stop Stop trying to answer the problems of life the way that you've been doing it. And let's just examine what God says and how he diagnoses our problem. And what we'll find is that when we survey the scriptures, that the problem 
really is far simpler and straightforward than we often think. And here's how the Bible would describe the problem, the world's greatest problems. Here's what it would say. Sin. If you want to know what the biggest problem in the world is, it's this. Sin. Now before you um, just assume, like, before you just agree with me, because I know you know it's a Christian project and we're learning Christian things and this is kind of like the Sunday school answer. Hold on. Let me, let, let's evaluate this for a minute. Or maybe you're not there. Maybe you're the other place where I say the world's biggest problems are and you, I say sin and you're like, okay, he's just trivializing all the problems I have in my life. He's reducing it down to a three-letter world word that so many Christians fling around and just for people with. Which is true. But I would say that, that the reason why we often rebel and the reason why we don't dig into why sin is the biggest problem is because we often have a truncated view of what it really is. We've minimized what sin really is so we don't actually see the damage it's doing. So what I want to do briefly tonight is I just want to look at three facets of sin to show you why it's the world's biggest problem. First reason why sin is the biggest problem is this. Is sin is... Hmm. Sin is disobedience. So look with me. That actually should be Ephesians. I don't know why I put that. It should be Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. So flip with me there if you have your Bibles real quick. Everybody have their Bibles or not? If you don't, it's okay. I can read it. So, character Bibles will be flipping a little bit. If you don't, it's okay. I will read it. Or you can turn on your phones too. I'm not partial to anything. Alright, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through three. Here's what it says. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin is disobedience. That's what Paul's getting at here. God is the creator. We are the creation. Therefore, he has created the norm and the right way to live for us. And our response is, nah, I'm good. I, I, Self-autonomy, if you guys have used that word. I have all the right, at least I believe I do, to define how I want to live my life and who I am. Sin is disobedience. It's choosing to live as if we create the norms. You know, I have uh, two boys I mentioned, and one of my sons is type A. You tell him a rule. You uh, put something in front of him. He will, one, focus on it so hard until it's accomplished, and two, he, wanna make, he wants to make sure he's in the, in the rules. He's following the rules. So you tell him, you did this wrong. He will say, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I'm like, oh, Yes, I do. That's very mature of you. <laughs> oh. And uh, my other son, not so much. Uh, 
he is doing this thing now where we'll catch him and I'll be like, dude, did you just do this? And I told you not to. And he'll do, he's been doing this thing where he's like. <laughs> and uh, it's hilarious. And it's so frustrating at the same time. And my wife will look at me and she'll go, you know where he got that, don't you? <laughs> you. And the funny thing is, is I'm like, ah, I know. Like, I can't fight it because I know. And you know, if you can ask Dayton, you can ask anyone on our team, my natural personality is, uh, if rules are in front of me, I'm gonna like, how do I toe the line? And maybe put my foot over it occasionally, but like have some fun doing it. And uh, he gets it from me. But here's what I would say. While that attitude in my life has given me a lot of fun, it's created a ton of destruction. I've hurt people. I have uh, done so much damage in my own life and done so done wicked things because I wanted to find the one. I want to live self-autonomously. Disobedience. And that's not the only way the Bible actually speaks about disobedience. I think that's fundamental that we fundamentally how we know. The Bible actually speaks of disobedience as not just doing bad things, but also withholding good things from those that are that are around us. Here's what I mean. Look, uh, I don't have this up there, but 1 John 7, 13 says, If anyone sees his neighbor and sees them in need, but closes his heart off against him, how can the love of God abide in him? You see your neighbor in need. You see a good that you can give them, but instead you withdraw. You may not even be doing something outwardly hateful or oppressive, but you're just withdrawing good from him. Disobedience. It is sin. Think again about the life of Jesus. Jesus steps into the scene in the Gospels. What do we get with the Pharisees? The Pharisees are a group of people that have created traditions, and they were in a society that had people that were widows, lame, Deaf, blind, and the, the Pharisees had created traditions where they withheld good from people out of their own perceived self-righteousness. So what does Jesus do? He steps in and he starts to heal people on the Sabbath. He starts to heal people that were unclean. Well, they weren't. They were unclean, but they were unclean. And what is the what do the Pharisees do? They hate him for it. What is Jesus doing? He's exposing their sin of disobedience because they were withholding good from their neighbor. Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you disobey God by your immoral actions or by withholding good from your neighbor, from those in your, in your room? Think about this. Think of a project that actually didn't withhold good from each other, that sought to doubt do each other in good. I guarantee you those at Walmart would come to our project and never want to leave. Because there's nowhere else that's doing that. So the sin of disobedience is far more than just immoral behavior. The sin isn't just disobedience. Sin is also, I think I have it next, sin is an intruder. Is that really small? Can you guys see that? I'm so sorry. I'm terrible at making slides. <laughs> But sin is an intruder. So if you flip with me, you don't have to. I'm just going to bust through the sin is an intruder. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Here's what it says. 
uh, it says this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's an odd way to start the, the beginning of a chapter. Do you know what Genesis 2, 24, 25 says? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That sounds pretty good. Three, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. It just, Genesis 3 starts so oddly. Who is this serpent? Where is Adam and Eve? Where is God at? You see, Genesis 3 doesn't feel like it fits with Genesis 1 and 2. And that's the whole point. It doesn't. Do you know how Genesis 3 should have gone? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other, uh, than any other beast of the field. Splat went the serpent. Because Adam killed it. But he didn't. It's an intruder. It does not belong in the story. That's the whole reason why when you read the Genesis account, Genesis 3 like, feels like it's this weird place and weird thing that doesn't make sense. It's not, it shouldn't belong. And it doesn't. You know, to flush this out of my own life, recently my cousin was married. His, his name's Chad, and he just got married, and we went and visited him. It was a ton of fun. Uh, but during that day, there was kind of like a cloud that hung over the whole day. The wedding reception, the wedding rehearsal. And there was a cloud of just sorrow and sadness because my uncle, his, his dad, uh, passed away a few years ago. A long, several years of battling cancer and just passed away. And so there was, you know, my aunt was sitting there and they put a picture of my uncle right beside her. And she, it was just, it was terrible. It was like, she was so sad. And it was this odd thing where you're at this wedding of a joyful, and people were joyful, but people were also simultaneously so somber and sad. And it just, it felt like weird. It didn't make sense. It, uh, he should not have to experience the most joyous day of his life without his father. But even more than that, when I consider my own life, uh, the parrot males, there hasn't been a parrot male in three generations that have lived into their 60s. My grandpa died when he was 61. My dad is now 60. My uncle died when he was 57, 56. And so if that's true. If I follow the trajectory of my family, I've lived over half my life now. It's not right. It's not right at all. And it doesn't make sense. You know, when we look at the virus and we look at the world and we look at all the injustices, we step back and we feel so disoriented. And how many times do people just try to rationalize the evil in the world? But where are we left at the end of the day? It doesn't make sense. But not only on the world, in my own life. I talk to my children this way. I get angry with my wife this way. And I know who God is. And I know what is a sinful way of acting. But I still choose to do this. Why? Why in the world would I choose sin when I know its consequences, when I know God and who He is? We try to rationalize it like, well, if they just didn't speak to me this way, if they just did this, if my circumstances were just better. No. Our sinful behavior makes no sense. 
based on who God is and who we are. And that's because we have an intruder that's come into the creation and corrupted it. Therefore, we, we just get to a certain point where we just know there's brokenness in the world that we just won't understand. It just won't add up. Sin and evil are somewhat of a mystery to us. And sin isn't just an intruder. Lastly, sin is a parasite. So, Rebel, uh, Romans chapter 7. Uh, flip there. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Here's what it says. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. For I know that there is nothing good that dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I if now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Such a really hard section of scripture to read all that. Um Paul is like alright. Um well, what's he getting at? Is that is that evil that good and evil sometimes simultaneously grow up together? That sin is like a parasite that even Paul, the good he wants to do, he finds evil closely at hand attached with it. And that's what we find consistently throughout Scripture is that sin attaches to God's good creation and perverts it for its own uses. So we find in our own life things like school and relationships and jobs and money and sex and alcohol and comfort and approval and pleasure, you name it, good things that God has given to us that we think, I, you know, I'm going to do this, it'll be good, but how often are those things uh, the very thing that bring calamity and hurt in our own life? Good things that God has given us. That start out maybe not with evil intent, but sometime along the way become the means that just do so much damage in our very own life. You see, sin is like a parasite that attaches to God's good creation and corrupts it. That that makes it destructive and destroys our life. Um Okay, so when we consider that sin is disobedience, sin is an intruder, and sin is a parasite, what I hope you see is that sin totally encompasses our life. To put it more bluntly, there has never been a time in your life in the past, or there never will be a time in the future where you will not experience an action, a desire, a thought, a moment that is not tainted by sin. Even the best moments. That's why, I don't know if you're like me, there are moments in high school and college, and even moments in project where you feel like you just want to bottle them up, but they just slip away out of your fingers. It's because they're tainted with sin. 
is because we are not just waist deep, but we're in over our heads in the marsh. You know, when I uh, when I was in the marsh and I was uh, you know stuck there waist deep, the guy ran down and he kind of shimmied his way over, and he was kind of in that grassy area, and he stuck out his arms. And uh, he said, grab my arms. My 10-year-old little hands that grabbed his arms. And they felt like they were gigantic. Probably mostly because I thought I was going to die. And um, he grabbed me and he yanked me up. And I just came up. And luckily my pants stayed on. Um, But I lost a water shoe. And uh, I was free. And he set me up. And he said, follow me. And I'll take you back up on the bridge. And so I was waist deep, or from my waist down, I was covered in mud, and I had to walk all the way back to our hotel um, without a shoe. And when I think about that event in my life, it is such a picture of God's solution to the problem. That God's solution is that He enters the world in Christ and rescues us from the weight of our own sin. That when we were without hope, feeling the weight of all the world and our own sin, we had no one to rescue us but God Himself. So, what is the solution? God entering the story. God entering the world and through Christ, defeating sin and rewriting the the direction of the world. Reclaiming what was lost. So I want to just briefly, lastly tonight, is how do you know if Christ is actually your solution? Not just a solution that you've heard about, but He's your solution. That you yourself have been rescued out of the marsh. Well, the first thing to realize is that God's in God's solution, I think I have a next, is that God restores our relationship. So if you're if you're flipped with me at Romans 7, that's stay there. We're gonna look a few chapters down. If not, I'm gonna go down to Romans chapter 8, read verses 1 through 4. It says this. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sin in the flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you hear it? You are no longer condemned. You're not condemned. Christ has bore the weight of your condemnation on the cross. You're free. He did it. How do we know that? Verses 2 and 3. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That on the cross, Christ died the death that we deserve so that we get the benefits that he has won. 
that on the cross Jesus gets uh, Jesus gets the punishment that we deserve so we can experience the life that he has won so that we all who through faith trust in Christ get what was only accessible to Jesus himself namely a relationship with God do you see it? This is, this is God's solution for us. That it's not uh, do more quiet times, start a personal ministry, stop wrestling with this sin, pick your boot up, put your, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, go to church more. No, God's solution is not to stand idly by, but to enter in to life, into history at a specific moment, break the chains of sin and free us from its consequences by paying the death and punishment that we deserve on the cross and raising up, declaring victory over sin and death and the devil so that we who trust in him can experience the life that he has won for us. Do you see how the solution is so much better than we often think? It's more than just Jesus died for my sins. Of course he did. But do you see what that entails? Do you see what it cost him? But wait, it gets better. He not only freed us and restored our relationship with him, but he did this. Look with me at verse 5 to 8. I think I have it next. Yes. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on things of the spirit. For those who set their mind on the flesh is death, but those who set their mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. What is Paul doing here? He's showing that when you've been freed, when you've experienced the freedom in Christ, that you've, you've tasted that there really is no condemnation in Christ, he redirects your life. You're free. The power of sin has been broken in your life. So that means that when uh, our old masters, the sins that so easily entangle us, that whisper our name and allure us back in, we can say, stop. You have no power over me anymore. I have been bought by the blood of another. I serve another master now. You have no claim over my life. He redirects your life. He's claimed it for himself. Have you tasted the goodness of Jesus redirecting you and freeing you from the power of sin in your own life? That's why Paul and the apostles went so consistently when they're writing to the New Testament churches uh, in the epistles. They keep reminding them of who they are. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God as beloved children. Ephesians, remember, you are children. Now imitate God. It's who you are. So I'm not asking you to do something if you're a Christian here that you aren't already. You already are free from sin. What I'm telling you is that the sins that so easily entangle us you don't have to listen to it anymore. Because righteousness has been gained by you. 
Jesus has given you only that which he has gained. That redirects our life. That changes things. That breaks the pattern of disobedience in our life. And we find ourselves actually wanting to live the life that God wants us to live. We find ourselves loving the things that God loves and beginning to hate the things that God hates. That's how we know we've tasted it. But wait, it gets better. Look with me. This is the last thing. Romans uh, 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the creation waits with eager longing for revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And we know, uh, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this, for in this hope, we were saved. Not only has God restored the relationship and redirected our life, He's going to come back, and He's not just going to free us from the power of sin. There will one day be a day where you're freed from the presence of sin. You will one day taste a moment in action. You will experience thoughts and desires that are not tainted by sin. We won't have to deal with the, the lunacy of trying to make sense of a sinful intruder into our world. Maybe to put it in the, the terms that we've been talking about tonight, the intruder will one day be kicked out. The parasite will be killed. Christ will come back and defeat our last enemy, sin, and throw it into the lake of fire. And you and I will know a world that has no corruption in it. This is what Jesus has purchased by his death on the cross. This is what Jesus has secured by raising from the dead. This is the life that we look forward to. Do you see now that when we often talk about what is the world's biggest problem, it's actually far simpler than we think. It's not complex. It's simple. It is far worse than we could expect. But yet, the good news of the gospel is better than we could have ever dreamed. You tasted it? Is it something that motivates you and compels you? I pray that this summer is a summer where you get to taste deeper and deeper riches in the goodness of God. So let me pray for us. Father, I pray for this time. God, thank you for moving and working in our lives. God, I pray that, um, yeah, that God, you would show us the goodness of Jesus. That we would taste the righteousness, we would, we would feel the righteousness that he has secured for us on the cross. So, God, meet us here tonight. Let us taste life. Let us see problems for what they really are in our life, and let us turn to the only solution that can cure. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from the 2021 Summer Training Project hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but please don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.